welcome to the podcast, The Common Bridge with Richard Helpy. Rich is a successful entrepreneur in the technology, health, and finance space. He and his wife, Leslie, are also philanthropists with interest in civic and artistic endeavors, but with a primary focus on medically and educationally underserved children. My name is Brian Kruger, and from time to time, I'll be the moderator and host of this podcast. Welcome to The Common Bridge. Today, we're going to be talking about trade with China and uh, possibly with other areas in Asia. Uh, Common Bridge is about letting people know what the policies are, what some of the history is, and contextually to bring down some of the partisan noise. Uh, We have a real treat today. Uh, Calling in from Australia is Robert Greenfield. Robert, welcome uh, to the Common Bridge. Thank you very much, Rich. I'm very happy to be here. Uh, Robert uh, is an Australian-American. He's been in the Asia-Pacific region for almost half a century. Uh, He's originally from southeastern Michigan. Lots of good people came from there. Uh, Went to Asia in 1973 for the Peace Corps and mixed in with coming back for a year or, you know, here and there uh, to the United States and San Francisco and to Florida. He's been in Asia ever since. Um, Very distinguished career in business, a senior executive for major firms that were expanding their markets and making deals in Asia. Um, among them, Black & Decker, Autodesk, Hayworth, Ingersoll Rand, Graphisoft, and others. Um, and he's been based in a wide range of localities, uh, including uh, China, on and off since 1982, when China was first recognized by the United States. Vietnam in the early 1990s, again, after the United States dropped the embargo and Americans were once again allowed back in. Uh, He's been in Hong Kong uh, during their golden period. He's been in Singapore seven times uh, as a a resident over the last five decades, Nepal and India in the Peace Corps and Australia again. Um, He is being recruited again for another assignment in China. He speaks Mandarin, which he studied at the Thunderbird Global Management School, uh, where he earned his master's in international business. Um, And he followed up as one of the first Americans to study Mandarin in China at the Beijing Institute of Foreign Trade. Um, As Robert likes to tell us, those were the days when the predominant Chinese expression was, and I'm going to mangle the pronunciation, I'm sure, (laughs) Mei Yu, meaning we don't have anything in the number one crop piled high on the streets were cabbages, while everyone had stories of abuse and terror and loss of life and careers and homes during the upheavals uh, in the Maoist period after the Chinese communists came to power in 49. Uh, Over the years, Roberts contributed to the growth of China, bringing in American investors and products, ranging from construction materials to joint venture building factories, and later on promoting U.S. software, uh, where he is currently the chief operating officer of Echodamus, incorporated a U.S.-based software company. Um, Robert, a lengthy career indeed. Uh, We will try to uh, get some highlights from your career and uh, perspective. Uh, So welcome uh, to the Common Bridge. I, I, could I just say thank you, and I want to say something special about you, Richard, that I think the what you're doing uh, by uh, reaching out around the world, this is quite, I think, very important, and that's the reason why I decided to participate in this. 
I uh, respect a great deal your uh, your viewpoints. While you and I don't always see eye to eye on everything, I think what's most important is your idea of dialogue sharing. And and I what I believe is having in-depth personal experience, not just what people read, but what also what people have experienced, particularly working for U.S. companies, in my case, outside the United States. So thank you for the opportunity. Well, Robert, thank you, and, and, and in kind, uh, maybe a little bit of introduction. Robert and I have never met, uh, but we share uh, common friends on social media. Uh, we do come at it from different perspectives, uh, but we have polite dialogue where we uh, discuss our differences, and that's really what the American experiment is about. And we're both trying to break through this polarization um, from different perspectives. Um, Robert, on, on China, uh, what problems are we trying to solve with these uh, trade deals that are being uh, presented as better trade deals? Well, um, we're kind of talking about it from 40 years down the pike, so to speak. What we're trying to solve is uh, some things that date back, as uh, one of your previous uh, guests on the show, uh, Aaron Boski, talked about, which is they date back 40 years. And what we're trying to solve today is something that has not been very successfully uh, dealt with uh, at all during that period of time. Uh, instead, we created a, uh, a monster, so to speak, and the Chinese uh, were far better and far larger and far more greater in population and way better at a lot of things than any of the other post-World War II relationships that we helped create, such as Germany, which is an ally, or Japan, which was a rival but an ally. In this case, we don't have that kind of control. So what we're trying to do uh, with President Trump, which I, I think I've told you I agree with at least half of what he's doing, uh, we're trying to rectify that. And we're trying to rectify it with uh, shock therapy. And shock therapy is not a bad thing when you have something that has not really had any effect or any appreciable effect over the past 40 years, which is increasingly gone uh, towards a negative side for the United States, initially very positive, but uh, you know over time negative. So what we're trying to do here is to stop the train. And when you try to stop a train, as you can imagine all trains, it takes a while to stop and it can get very messy. If you looked at the arc of our trade relationship uh, juxtaposed with our political relationship with China, uh, Let's say if we wound the clock back, say, to the 1980s, and um, my recollection, uh, bringing in, you know, cheap toys and such from China, um, and then the Tiananmen Square uh, issue, and uh, as uh, other guests have said, that really the change in China goes back to the 70s with Nixon and Kissinger. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about your perspective from, uh, you know, pick a starting point and how's our, our trade and political relationship with China evolved and, and, and perhaps how did that lead to the Trans-Pacific Partnership and then on to this next uh, Trump uh, tariffs and Trump uh, trade policy? 
Okay, well, that's a big question. So. <laughs> well, take all the time uh, um, you, you need on that. And I guess to preface it by saying that uh, Robert's not a fan of this president, um, but he's an objective guy that likes some of the things that are going on and some of the things he's troubled with. And I think that's what our listeners really want to know is what's the pros and cons of what's going on today? Uh, okay. Well, let, very briefly, going back to the 70s. So um, as we all know, um, the 70s were a very difficult time for the United States, meaning that the U.S. was getting out of Vietnam. Uh, Richard Nixon uh, was a very interesting man in our history, although he did a lot of negative things. One of the interesting things was he reached out to China, and he uh, had a rapprochement with uh, using Kissinger, and that led to normalization of, of relations uh, at the end of the Carter period, uh, and under Reagan, the relationship, of course, then moved to a more political but really commercial relationship. So what we can date our commercial relationship with China uh, is from uh, the, the time of, of Reagan, the early time of Reagan. Before that, it was a political relationship uh, that opened up, uh, and I think that Nixon, by and large, did a, an excellent deal. Uh, he was really good. Kissinger was at his, at his height. It was not like the Vietnam War where Kissinger signed something that really uh, didn't work except to get the United States out. Uh, in the case of China, actually, it did work because China was coming also to the end of the Maoist period, which one of your previous guests noted was a, a bit of a disaster. And I think you also alluded to that uh, with the Cultural Revolution. When I first showed up in China in 1982, and I'd like to take this from an experiential point as, a point as opposed to, let's just say, you know, um, you know, having been peripherally in, involved. When I arrived, I mean, you mentioned the uh, infamous cabbages, but in the word, uh, the way that's pronounced is mayo, um, in China just didn't have anything. Uh, they had been cut off for a long period of time. They were not recognized by most countries. The U.S. recognition uh, began to change that. Shortly after that time, a guy called Deng Xiaoping came in, and he was a, the most practical and important person in Chinese modern history other than uh, Mao. And what he did was he reached out to the United States, which has also been talked to about by other, other people. The United States um, was very open to creating what they hoped was, would be a free uh, China, meaning that China would eventually become more like the U.S., and less like the Soviet Union. So in that period of time from 1982 to 89, which you also mentioned about, uh, I was at that time in Hong Kong, uh, all the toy guys were in South China. They were starting to make you know, very inexpensive things, things had moved over from Japan, things had moved from Korea, and they were starting to move to China. So it was all about South China. And it was all about um, not outsourcing, it was actually about sourcing. There's a difference between outsourcing and sourcing. These were products that are inexpensive that the United States wasn't making anyways. So it was all good news in the 1980s. Everybody was happy. China was happy, Hong Kong's happy, and money was starting to pour in. So the history then becomes, from a commercial point of view, everything was going in the right direction until Tiananmen Square. When Tiananmen Square happened, Actually, from a commercial side, it did not slow things down. That's one of the interesting sides. But geopolitically, it became a very difficult thing uh, for the United States. 
However, the U.S. was in no mood or position or situation with the changes of the Soviet Union and also the Soviet Union uh, essentially losing its power over East Germany and then later starting to dissolve. So the U.S. was not concerned with China, and Tiananmen Square was really not uh, pressured onto China to do something. The Chinese, however, looked at Tiananmen Square completely different. They said, whoa, hit the reset button. They didn't want to hit the reset button on uh, development. They had their own plan. But what they did push the reset button on was there would be no more freedom in China. So you can go back to a small period of time for 10 years maybe where China was opening. And then from 1989 onwards, it has increasingly become closed, closed, and more closed vis-a-vis the local people and any kind of what we would call democratic principles. But from the United States' point of view, from the United States' point of view, that was not a big deal for us because, you know, we kept thinking, wow, if we could just do this uh, better, if we can just get them, you know, more money, FDI is a great word that was used, foreign direct investment. This, The money, the billions would pour in from Germany, United States, UK, all of that kind of stuff was pouring into China. And then the manufacturing started to move from the south of China to moving up to the center and then to the north. And as that started to move up, everything seemed to still be okay. The United States under Clinton, everybody was doing very well. And then actually the most important event that we hardly ever think about when we think about the relationship between China and the United States happened, which was 9-11. And why is that a very important thing? The reason is, is because the Bush administration, rightly or wrongly, and I I am not going to put out an opinion on that, but it's very clear that the Bush administration focused on Afghanistan and on also Iraq. And what they did was they stopped thinking about China altogether. China was not of any interest to them. Asia was not of any interest. The U.S. was focused on those those two other uh, other areas. So throughout the 2000s, and I was in China a lot in the 2000s. I was actually selling U.S. technology uh, into China, and the amount of money that was coming in and the amount of outsourcing, meaning that U.S. factories were closing. So the U.S. factories closing throughout the, the 2000s. Uh, were enormous. And China was actually having a difficult time absorbing the foreign capital that was coming in and also uh, taking on all this manufacturing. Uh, I worked in the air conditioning industry, as an example, trying to sell uh, technology to the air conditioning industry. I was in New Jersey at a very large corporate headquarters of a U.S. company uh, related to Carrier. And within six months later, that headquarters was gone because it was outsourced, not just the manufacturing, but also the engineering. So that leads us to, as you talk about, uh, full full forward to let's say about the Obama years. Yeah, yeah. So this but is I, this is this is fascinating that this this arc of history uh, through the you know beginning with Nixon going through the Clinton era and the perspective that the Bush administration got wrapped up focusing on the aftermath of 9-11 and things, but China was still going to continue um, their uh, long view of, of making their country secure and prosperous. And that led up, what, when the Obama administration came in, what situation did they find 
and and what did they do with it, um, and and then maybe where did they leave it for the Trump administration? Because I think this is this is fascinating how these administrations change, and sometimes they hand over a policy, and sometimes the new administration comes in and says, you know, we're doing a 180 degree turn here. I'd love to hear your perspective on that. Okay, well, the only 180 degree turn that's ever come is with Trump, okay? Uh, everything else has been a continuation. Uh, but what Obama found, and I don't think Obama had a clue, uh, and I don't think he had a clue when he left, okay? And I don't think many people in the Obama, Obama administration had a clue at how uh, bad uh, or how dis uh, unbalanced the relationship had come, become with China. All they knew was is that the U.S. was in a big problem and Obama was trying to, quote unquote, save certain industries, including in Detroit. It was quite important for me and uh, my family and friends that he uh, helped save the auto industry. However, what had happened, uh, Rich, is that the supply chain uh, had been lost. And uh, I think you have some experience and you have some background in that. I, I think you know about that too, right? Once that's disrupted, how how do you regain supply chain? Well, it's a you know we, you and I, Rich, grew up in in Detroit, and how many times have you heard that story about uh, the River Rouge plant where it would come in with iron ore and it would go out as a Model T, right? Absolutely. Well, well you know, you think of Phillips and you know all these uh, 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 you know supply companies. What well, I'm sorry, Rich, you may remember what's the name of the the GM uh, supply auto parts manufacturer that was um, that they hived up Delphi. Del Delphi, sure, yeah, Delphi. Yeah, Delphi. Uh, yeah, they okay. they were um, that that was part of the local supply chain, and um, I, I'm glad you brought up the Rouge plant because that was the supply chain. Bring everything into one place, and the Ford Motor Company could take iron ore and rubber and produce a car on that Ford complex. And the world's become way more complex and interconnected. And, and you know, Robert, from our humble beginnings in Southeast Michigan, we were told, hey, the Chinese are st stealing our jobs. They're, you know, the offshoring, outsourcing. Um, and so I, I'd like to, you know, if you, if you want to touch on that a little bit, was that really happening? And then you know, what were some of the good things that the Obama administration did and what are some of the opportunities perhaps they've missed? And I want to make sure I preface this with that. Um, Robert is a, a guy who very big, much a, a fan of Barack Obama and the administration and <laughs> not not so much with Trump or Bush. OK, to, to, be, to put it mildly. So we're OK, we're, I, I, I don't. OK, I um, let's say. Politics separate from economics, okay? So I am not an Obama fan when it comes to um, the way economics are done. I was more of a fan with his, um, let's say, healthcare, okay? Or, which I think was a mistake, but at least he, he tried. Um, it's interesting, Rich, that you mentioned uh, Delphi, and thank you for remembering that name. And there's an important reason to mention that because it's gonna go forward to the, to the future, okay? As you know, um, we all thought that manufacturing was all about that original River Rouge example. The reality is today that the smarts that are in the car, the IP that drives the car, that does, that's going to be doing the uh, electric cars and all of those kinds of things 
are actually making Delphi, which was spun off and gotten rid of because GM thought not important. It's actually making Delphi almost as much, if not more valuable than GM itself. And if you look at the, G, the auto manufacturers as an interesting example, the auto manufacturers are right now trying to move to that beyond just the next generation. They are in the midst of a revolution. So when we start looking at what we're going to talk about with China for the future, it's not about who can assemble the, you know, a car for the cheapest price. It's about what is going to go into that car, what is driving that car, which is software, apps, as in applications, uh, chips, these kinds of things. That's where the real value and the real battle uh, with the Chinese are. But to go back to your answer your question about the transition between uh, Bush and Obama, uh, there were so many things happening that I don't think Obama was aware of the Chinese situation. But I also want to go back about did China steal the jobs or what happened? And I was there. And I want to tell you that uh, what happened is this, and I was there not just for the U.S. side, but I was also with Black & Decker, as, which is an American company, and I closed the factories in the last factories in Australia, and I outsourced that production to China. So I understand exactly what was done. And I, I did not do the engineering. I drew the line at that, and I left the company. But they not only outsourced the production, but they also, like Hewlett-Packard, they outsourced their engineering. So what, what happened with the U.S. and the corporate side is this. The United States does not really have a trade policy such as what Donald Trump has done. And I think he's done an outstanding job, at least in shaking up the U.S., manufacturers. Unfortunately, the uh, the tax policy has not worked the, the best way that it could have. But he did a very good job of saying, let's not outsource anymore. Let's think about keeping jobs in the United States. Now, it may be too late. We can talk about that. But actually, he's the first person who actually said to the U.S. manufacturers, no, it's not okay to outsource everything to China. No, it's not okay to give our IP to the Chinese to do it on our behalf. I had a project with the American Management Association to work on behalf of Hewlett-Packard in China uh, 10 years ago. And the problem was that Hewlett-Packard was outsourcing not just the printers, but they were outsourcing all of the engineering and the engineering design. HP asked me, they said, well, what can we do about, uh, you know, controlling um, you know, these guys that are going to be doing everything for us, because now we're just a brand manager. And I said, hey, man, you guys are in deep trouble. The only way that you can, you can control it at this point is what I would call process engineering. And if any of you know anything about that, you can still control things by controlling a process, not necessarily just the engineering. But it becomes that kind of a fine-tooth comb, uh, Rich, when, when you outsource so much at the end of the day, what you become is a brand manager. You don't become a manufacturer. You don't become really a designer. So is it chicken or egg? Did the Chinese take or did we give them? I would say this. I would err more on the fact that we actually gave more to the Chinese because we had very short-term thinking, particularly on the management side. And I would say that was also true on the union side. The union during the 1990s were still fat, dumb, and happy, and they were still taking very large bonuses. They, everything was, you know, working well. And then they tried to cruise into the 2000s while they were losing some jobs. And then, of course, they were hit by the Great Recession, 
which was, you know, party over uh, for everybody, not just for that generation, but for the next generation. So the answer to your question, which is, did they take it or did we outsource it? It's more that we gave it to them. Only later did we understand that we did not have a lot left. And by that time, uh, well, didn't, frankly didn't, speaking, didn't China also, um, uh, they said, you know, hey, we're a poor country. And so you need to give this to us, um, you know, cheap or free. And that there are theories that said that's why they stole our intellectual property, because they felt like, gosh, they just needed it. They were... Uh, the the Les Miserables of countries at that time, you know, just stealing to feed their uh, their hungry people. Any any uh, basis for for that kind of viewpoint? You know what? This is why you're the smartest guy in the room. Thanks a lot for reminding me of that because I had that problem. <laughs> for 20, you were stealing. You, you were stealing bread. <laughs> no, I was. You know, um, I ended up. Uh, kind of opting out of negotiating with the Chinese because that became such a problem for me. Uh, every time I sat down to do a deal, uh, you would have a contract and it would go two or three more layers through the government and the government would require that you uh, joint venture, which meant that you lost control. They would require that you share certain design. They would require that you gave them an extra discount, you know, type of thing because we're China. And I think, Rich, I shared with you an example, the, the famous one from uh, Bill Gates. Uh, when Bill Gates was there in around the year 2002 in Beijing, and they were using all these uh, uh, stolen illegal copies of all the Microsoft programs. And there's a questioner at Beijing University and asked Bill over and over, uh, why don't you give it to us? Uh, I mean, you could ask this to Bill Gates. He, he was the guy that was right there. But they asked him, why don't you give a, us a break? Why, don't you, why are you pushing China to, to pay for this software? Because we're a poor country. And Bill Gates famously said, you can pay me now or you can pay me later, but you're going to pay us. That led to what was called the Linux movement, which is the, the very same principle, Rich, that is now being practiced by uh, Huawei and other people towards the United States vis-a-vis -vis the, the tariffs, which yeah, is so, this. So for those folks that are not um, uh, versed in the technology, um, Linux is an operating system that kind of led the uh, open source movement and the idea is that if you were a coder, you would develop uh, a, a, a code, you would uh, just give it away, you would post it, and people could go get that versus going through Microsoft or um, another company that was doing development at Google and so forth. Um, so, th and, and so, Robert, I just want to make sure that most of our listeners are not uh, technology experts, but this is really important about moving from purely uh, proprietary to open source uh, programming, which is fundamentally free, unless, Except, you're, red, unless you're Red Hat. Yeah, exactly. So here's what happened. Um, Bill Gates blinked and the Chinese blinked, and I'll tell you why. So what happened was that the Chinese did not have a lot of money, and Bill Gates had more power than the Chinese uh, realized. They were not ready to do Linux, and they tried, and they were not able to do exactly what you just said. But Bill Gates was smart, and he kowtowed, 
and he spent about 500 million US dollars to train everybody in China in Microsoft programs. He did give them very special prices, and most importantly, he decided to not uh, say anything. In other words, there would be no problem about censorship. And later on, when his uh, browser came out, which is called Bing, and as you know, Bing is not used in the United States. I think it's, I think it's got a one or two percent of the browser market, of the uh, search engine market. In China, Bing is used by everybody. And that's because Bill Gates does not care about censorship. Bill Gates does not care about data control. Bill Gates is only interested in uh, selling Microsoft products. The good news for Microsoft, and actually for the US, if you want to be Machiavellian, is that uh, Microsoft is now the number one brand in China, as it is everywhere else in the world. So US companies learn their lesson. Don't you know, argue with China, especially they're not the governments. You know, Bill Gates you know, dodged the bullet. And so everybody else, including the company I worked for, Autodesk, which is number one in, I think you probably know the product, AutoCAD is the number yep, one sure product do. in the world. Yep. And all their derivatives off of that. Um, AutoCAD or Autodesk did the opposite model. Autodesk said, okay, everyone's got all these illegal copies. I was with the CEO of Autodesk in, in China in 2002. Her name was Carol Bartz. And she said the same thing Bill Gates said. She said, uh, when are you going to stop stealing my, my software? <laughs> and I was, I was leading that delegation. I thought I'd have a heart attack, you know, kind of thing. But, uh, because not because I was an appeaser, but because I didn't want to just fight with them. But what's happened is, and I think I've mentioned this to you also, Rich, is that a lot of American uh, careers have been made in China, basically legalizing illegal copies of US software, including AutoCAD, Microsoft, uh, and other products. Now, what that's meant is, is that the US is actually the number one software company in China. So if we go back to what's the future, I don't believe the future is in soybeans, even though that'll buy some votes, okay? I think that the real future with China is in this intellectual property side, is in the Delphi, as an example, it is in the Elon Musk and all the things that he's doing. It is in the uh, you know 5G network, which is about what I know you want to talk about that, in the alternatives to Huawei. It's in all of those uh, fields. And so where we, where we went from Obama, Obama didn't understand any of that. But it's to his credit that Obama said, okay, I'm an old line, you know, Democrat from, let's say, you know, the post-World War II idea, which is we're going to make a treaty. As everybody knows, the um, he treaty he made or signed with the Paris Accords, Trump dumped that. Then there, Trump also was not very happy with the Iran deals. Both of those two deals you can argue about. Um, but I don't think you can argue against what uh, Obama did with the TPP. All right. I think that's a good place to pause this, and we'll end episode one of Richard Helpy's interview with Robert Greenfield. We'll pick it up next time for episode 23, um, where they'll talk further about the Trans-Pacific uh, Partnership. Please rate us uh, when you hear this on the Apple Podcast or BuzzFeed or Spotify or wherever you hear it. We're, we're looking for ratings that will help our cause. And also go out and visit richardhelpy.com. And there you can find ways to uh, comment on podcasts and even maybe come up with something that you would like us to talk about or comment on the podcast. And uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. 
You have been listening to Richard Helpy's Common Bridge Podcast. Recording and post-production provided by Stunt3 Multimedia. All rights are reserved by Richard Helpy. For more information, visit richardhelpy.com.